Good evening, everyone, and welcome to the New York Historical Society. I'm Louise Mirror, New York Historical's president and CEO, and I'm really thrilled to see so many of you, despite the cold weather, although I'm told it's above freezing, so maybe that doesn't feel cold anymore, but I'm really thrilled to see so many of you in our beautiful Robert H. Smith Auditorium. I uh, want to make sure that um, those of you who have not seen uh, Annie Leibovitz's pilgrimage photographs, um, that you be sure to get to see them this week. This show is closing uh, next weekend. And that is also true for our fabulous train exhibitions. So goodbye to that until next November when we um, will install round two of that great show. Tonight's program, Great Battles of the Civil War, the Wilderness and Beyond, is a part of the Bernard and Irene Schwartz Distinguished Speakers Series. And um, as always, I'd like to express my great gratitude to Mr. Schwartz for enabling us through his great generosity to invite so many terrific historians and writers to this auditorium. Um, I, it is a great privilege for me to recognize um, a friend, great friend of this institution, but in particular to congratulate him on the occasion of fabulous, fabulous opening of a hip hop play with which he had a lot to do, and he's already singing hip hop, so I'm really, really impressed. Ron Cherno, congratulations on Hamilton. Sometime he's going to do that on our stage. <laughs> Tonight's program will last about an hour, and it will include a question and answer session. Audience members will, as always, be invited to approach standing microphones to my left and to my right in the aisles. We do that so that the speakers on stage, the rest of the audience, and those who listen to our uh, programs online can hear your questions. Um, the books of our speakers tonight are available, including the Hot Off the Press um, book by Harold Holzer, are all available in our bookshop, and um, we will have a book signing following the program, so please join us for that. We are thrilled to welcome back Craig L. Simons to the New York Historical Society. Dr. Simons is a leading Civil War and Naval historian and professor emeritus at the United States Naval Academy where he taught, has taught for more than 30 years. He's the author or editor of 25 books, including Lincoln and His Admirals, which won the 2009 Lincoln Prize. His most recent book is Neptune, The Allied Invasion of Europe, and The D-Day Landings. We're also pleased to welcome back James McPherson, the George Henry Davis 1886 Professor of American History Emeritus at Princeton University and one of the country's preeminent Civil War scholars. He's the best-selling author of numerous books, including Battle Cry of Freedom, which won the Pulitzer Prize in 1989. He's a two-time winner of the Lincoln Prize for his books, Tried by War, Abraham Lincoln as Commander-in-Chief, and For Cause and Comrades, Why Men Fought in the Civil War. His most recent book is Embattled Rebel, Jefferson Davis as Commander-in-Chief. Our moderator this evening is Harold Holzer, the Roger Hertog Fellow at the New York Historical Society also chairman of the Abraham Lincoln Bicentennial Foundation, and a recipient of the National Humanities Medal. He's the author, co-author, or editor of more than 40 books on Lincoln in the Civil War era. And his new book on Lincoln and the Power of the Press has just been announced as the winner of the 2015 Lincoln Prize. So congratulations. <laughs> 
Mr. Holzer served also as content consultant to the Steven Spielberg film Lincoln, and his book, The Civil War in 50 Objects, tells the story of the Civil War through the use of objects from our very own New York Historical Society collection. And now, as always, please make sure that anything that makes noise, like a cell phone, is switched off before joining me in welcoming our speakers to the stage. Good evening, everyone. Boy, am I glad about the Lincoln Prize. It would have been humiliating to be sitting with you. That didn't come through. That was one joke, which didn't go over too well. I was also going to say that I didn't tell Dr. Mirror, but this is actually going to be a hip-hop version of the Wilderness <laughs> Campaign, because it seems to be the, to the way to go. Um, well, as always, it's an honor and, a, and great fun to share the stage with my friends Jim McPherson and Craig Simons. Um, Craig, always good to have you away from World War II, back to the Civil War where you started and belong. <laughs> and um, we've done this Great Battles series for a few years now, and Boy, we've run through some of the biggest hits. We did Fredericksburg about 10 days ago. I think some of you were here. And now we're going to do something that's a little more obscure, but important, 150 years ago. And that is, if my cue works right, the Battle of the Wilderness. Um, Jim, let's start with you and the obvious. What, when, where, the Battle of the Wilderness. <clears throat> well, this was uh, yet another on to Richmond effort by the Army of the Potomac, although uh, Grant was going to uh, modify that uh, while he hoped to get to Richmond and eventually did. Uh, his main purpose was to bring the Army of Northern Virginia to battle in such a way as to destroy it or at least cripple it. Uh, this represented not only Grant's idea of how to win the war, but also Lincoln's idea of how to win the war. Uh, the Union war effort had uh, been quite successful in occupying Confederate territory and capturing Confederate cities, uh, but the war was now entering its fourth year, uh, and it was still going on. The Confederacy was still a going concern. Clearly, the strategy of capturing cities, capturing territory uh, had not worked, uh, even if Richmond had fallen. Uh, during the first three years of the war. It's not clear whether that would have brought an end to the Confederacy. And so Grant's idea was to move south across the Rapidan and Rappahannock rivers, uh, moving toward Richmond, of course, uh, but his purpose was to bring Lee to battle uh, with the hope that it would actually result in uh, a crippling blow uh, to the Army of Northern Virginia and hasten the end of the war. Uh, it didn't turn out that way. The war, of course, went on for almost another year. But it was the beginning blow uh, in what turned out to be the year of the worst carnage in the Civil War, if you can believe that, after the year of Gettysburg and Chickamauga, uh, Vicksburg, Chattanooga, Chancellorsville, 1863. 1864 turned out to be even worse. And it was mainly because of a series of titanic clashes between these two armies that began on May 5th, uh, 1864, in the wilderness of Virginia, which we'll be talking about this evening. To reboot, and Craig, you've written extensively about Gettysburg. Tell us 
why the idea that Gettysburg was the beginning of the end didn't seem to be apparent in May 1864. Well, looking back on the Civil Wars from today, we, we look at that month of July 1863 and we think, well, this was the pivot point of the war. And there's some argument that can be made in, in support of that. Uh, the 3rd of July, of course, is the date of climactic Pickett's charge at Gettysburg. And the 4th of July, Vicksburg surrendered to Grant, 1,000 miles further west in Mississippi. And, and to us looking back it, back, it seems like, well, clearly, from, this is, we're just going to play this out now, that clearly the North is winning. But as Jim pointed out, uh, the bloodiest year of the war by far is 1864. And this particular campaign, uh, usually referred to as the Overland Campaign, as to contrast it with what George McClellan tried to do in 1862 by moving around by sea. Now, Grant, abiding by what he knows is the president's preference to keep the Union Army between Washington, D.C., and Robert E. Lee, is going to attack Lee and do so overland. And the first step of that is this assault into the wilderness. Um, can I just say a word about the wilderness, or are you going to ask course. about that? Of course. No, I, tell us. We saw this earlier slide of the trees and the forests and the very name of the battle. And, uh, I think it's worth saying something about this area. This is the area just south of the Rapidan River, just upstream from where it flows into the Rappahannock. And for really more than two years, it had formed the kind of de facto military boundary between the two sides. It was almost, in fact, there's a book called The Dare Mark. The, the Dare Mark uh, between the two sides, more so than the Potomac. The northern part of Virginia occupied mostly by the Union Army during the war. But the Rapidan-Rappahannock line, that was kind of the military boundary. And, and armies, you talked about Fredericksburg 11 days ago in here, that crossed the Rappahannock into Fredericksburg, came to grief. Joe Hooker crossed the Rapidan and Rappahannock, came to grief at Chancellorsville in the wilderness. And in this area, as you can see in the slide, this is what they called second growth forest. Uh, it had been overly logged and partially burned down, and a second growth had grown up that was very thick. And there's only a few major roads and very few clearings. So when we talk about the carnage, and I'm sure we will, that took place on the 5th and 6th of May of 1864, keep in mind it's taking place in an almost medieval forest uh, just south of the Rapidan River, which is, of course gave the battle its name. You mentioned um, something we discussed earlier that uh, that Lee allows Burnside to uh, cross toward Fredericksburg rather unchallenged. Uh, and here is Grant, I'm wondering, worried, or does he, does he know the history? And he's crossing a river. Lee is allegedly watching from the heights, but is not interfering with the crossing. I mean, I know I'm asking you to get step into his mind, but it just seems like it could be a trap again, though. No? Well, uh, Grant's purpose was to get through the wilderness as quickly as possible uh, and bring Lee to battle somewhere south of the wilderness and east of uh, Mine Run, a stream that the Confederates uh, uh, had set up fortifications on the previous fall. Um, but Lee decided to allow Grant to enter the wilderness and then to confront him there. Uh, as Craig pointed out, it's uh, very few clearings um, scrub oak and pine, uh, not many openings in this forest, which partly neutralized the superiority of the Army of the Potomac in numbers. Grant had about 110,000 men, Lee had about 60,000 men, and also the superiority of the Army of the Potomac in artillery. 
artillery needs open areas, um, fields of fire. And the wilderness offered fairly, uh, very few of those, a few small farm clearings, a few roads. But otherwise, uh, it, it, it uh, gave the advantage to the defensive. And so Lee decided he would confront Grant in the wilderness. He would allow him to cross the rivers uh, without serious opposition, but then confront him south of those rivers. Uh, and that's uh, exactly how it happened. So I can't resist doing this one slide. So this is uh, not too many months before uh, Lincoln appoints Grant. So Lincoln names Grant a few months earlier as um, commander of Union armies. Grant can't wait to get into the field. But how much did, Grant, did Lincoln know about the details of the campaign? Did he approve? Did he think it would work? Both of you have mentioned, or, and Jim mentioned tonight, that the emphasis is, is switching now from capturing the capital to destroying armies. I'm just wondering how much the commander-in-chief knew here. Well, there's a very interesting meeting that takes place in February when Grant first arrives in Washington. It's a cold day like today is here in New York. And, and Grant checks in at the Willard Hotel. And as it happens, there's a reception going on in the White House. And Grant goes over. And they meet there for the first time. And there's some sort of interesting conversation that takes place. Lincoln actually has Grant stand up on a chair at one point so people can see him. Lincoln being 6'4", Grant being 5'8", Grant needs to stand on the chair. I don't know. Whatever symbolism you want to make of that, I guess, is up to you. But later on, they go into a side room, and they talk. And we don't know exactly what was said. We have a couple of, of stories about it. But it seems that Lincoln had long, and I, Jim has pointed this out very clearly in a lot of his, his work, that Lincoln had long tried to get his commanders to see this as a continental struggle. Don't don't one force go forward and the other wait to see how that works out, and then the other will try. If we all move at the same time, that will change the dynamic entirely because now the Confederates have to choose right. what they're going to defend. And I think this was the main subject of their strategic view. Now, in terms of the tactics, whether you're going to cross the stream and fight in the wilderness or go, Lincoln doesn't really need to know that and, and probably doesn't right. ask Grant about it. But it becomes clear, and I think we need to remember, too, that we talk about the Overland cam Campaign because of this meeting of the minds that takes place between Commander-in-Chief and General-in-Chief. The meeting of the minds is that this will be a continental strategy that has five components, not just the Wilderness Campaign, but Sherman, of course, is going to move into Georgia, which did happen, and then three other smaller actions are supposed to take place along the coast of Virginia at Mobile and West in the Shenandoah yeah. Valley. Those come to grief. And, and Stanton, oh, I'm going to show now, not being part important. of a grief. But, but it's five component right. parts. Yeah. And Stanton is, I mean, joint action is sort of new. And Stanton is part of this strategy, right? Well, and so is Halleck, because Halleck is responsible in Washington for, um, as a clearinghouse for Grant's um, strategic orders in this campaign. They all go through Halleck in Washington uh, to coordinate these five armies that are I mean, they, they, this is really a, a fairly, a very carefully planned campaign. Grant, they're all going to move on the same day, uh, in, uh, on or about May 5th, mm -hmm. uh, and, and uh, carry on an offensive that would, be pin, would pin down uh, all of the Confederate armies. And there's a wonderful um, statement by Lincoln when uh, he and Grant talk about this that Grant would move against Lee, Sherman would move against Joe Johnston in Georgia, and then there would be these other three. 
campaigns, and Lincoln said, well, those not skinning can hold a leg. Right. Uh, so Grant and Sherman were to do the skinning. The other three guys uh, could do skinning if they wanted to, if they could, but their main job was to try to uh, prevent any reinforcements to Lee's and Johnston's armies. I always wonder if they had to have a summer to parse that instruction. <laughs> those not skinning should hold the leg. But Lincoln also told Grant, supposedly at this meeting, right, he said, wherever Lee goes there, you shall go. No, that's, that's, that's what Grant told Meade. Right. Oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Okay. Well, let's talk about Meade because he's involved. He of the Gettysburg victory. Yeah, Meade, people tend to forget I mean, this. Meade remains the commander of the Army of the Potomac through the end of the war. I mean, people tend to think, well, he was at Gettysburg and then he's replaced by Grant. There had been so other, so many other replacements one after another, but that is not the case. Meade retains command of the Army of the Potomac when Grant shows up to be general of the armies, to command all of the Union armies. Uh, the Army of the Potomac is one of those. And the analogy that I use with my students teaching at the Naval Academy is like, if you're the captain of the ship, you might have an admiral on board who commands the squadron, but you still command that ship even if the admiral is sailing around with you. And that's kind of the relationship that they had. Now, Grant was a little dubious about Meade when he showed up. I think he came thinking he'd probably have to replace him with someone else, but decided, well, Meade, Meade would be okay in that particular role. So Grant is giving operational orders to all of the armies, including Meade's. He just happens to be with Meade as that army advances. And of course, it creates a curious dynamic because Meade is kind of looking over his shoulder a lot during all of this and aware that the general is watching, even though he's supposedly making decisions about the management of his army. Which he uh, retains through to Appomattox, does he? Which he retains right through Appomattox, that is correct. Okay, so thank you for correcting me, um, both of you in chorus. <laughs> Grant's instruction to Meade, what is, Lee's objective is simply to hold as long as he can? Well, Lee's objective was always to hurt the enemy as much as possible. Uh, Lee also believed in destroying enemy armies. He had, from the time he took command of the Army of Northern Virginia, uh, in June of 1862. So uh, you now have opposing commanders. We'll, we'll continue to talk about Grant as commander, even though Meade is the titular, at least, commander of the Army of the Potomac. Uh, you've got two commanders in charge here, Grant and Lee, who believe in really hurting the enemy army. And I think that's going to be key uh, to understanding this overland campaign and the huge casualties that it generated on both sides in the month from um, May 5th uh, through June 3rd or so, uh, the highest rate of casualties in the entire war for, for any given month. And most of them were between these two armies in Virginia. Sherman was operating against Johnson, but with far fewer casualties and much greater maneuver. Uh, whereas the, the armies in Virginia were slugging it out with each other. So let's start on, on March 5th, in this marshy underbrush. May, May, 5th. May 5th. Tell us about that first day of action and carnage. Okay. Um, there are two Fords that, that Grant slash Meade, and I'll, I'll follow the convention and say Grant, uh, that Grant uses to cross Germanus Ford and Ely's Ford across the Rapidan into the wilderness. And once they enter into that area, now, as Jim mentioned, the numbers, his superiority in numbers, his greatest advantage, that's severely, not entirely erased, but certainly limited. Uh, there are also two roads that run roughly west to east, and they're both named Orange, the Orange 
Turnpike and the Orange Plank Road. Uh, the, and they're really the only way through that, this horrible scrub. This looks like a fairly open area it does, here, yeah. but uh, that, that's a bit misled. That's That's after they the get scene, out of the wilderness. interesting. Uh, when they finally get out of the wilderness, the uh, troops actually broke into a song, Ain't You Glad to Get Out of the Wilderness? And they were. But in the wilderness, Lee then advances on these two roads, one corps, one infantry corps along each road to hit the uh, Union Army as it's moving southward. So you've got two forces moving from west to east into a force that's moving south, and they collide in the middle of this almost impenetrable. And, and because they can't sustain a, a common front, they have to fight individually. So the two battles turn out to be almost separate confrontations because running couriers back and forth and maintaining a, a, a continuous line of advance proves to be almost impossible. And, and it devolves in many cases into brigade size or even regiment size confrontations, except that a few places clustered right around those two orange roads running into the wilderness. Well, yeah, I think that's, that's exactly right. The, 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 it was the Union forces that initially attacked, but Confederates counterattacked. And at the end of the day, on May 5th, the Union forces had gotten the worst of it. Um, along the Orange Turnpike, uh, Ewell confronted Governor Warren primarily, the Union V Corps against the Confederate II Corps, uh, and repeated attacks by Warren's uh, division uh, supported by part of Sedgwick's 6th Division, but it was mostly Warren's 5th Division, uh, across a field called Saunders Field, one of those um, few openings in the wilderness, uh, were thrown back with heavy Union casualties. And then about three miles to the south along the Orange Plank Road, um, where it intersects with uh, a north-south road called the Brock Road, A.P. Hill's people attacked uh, Winfield Scott Hancock's Second Corps. I mean, well, the Second Corps initially attacked, but then were counterattacked, plus one division of the Sixth Corps. And I think uh, we would have to agree, probably, that on day one, May 5th, the Confederates probably got the better of it. Um, and where do they fall back to in this maze of trees and Marsh. I mean, well, that's where they are. There's really no place to go. There is uneven terrain. You mentioned high ground. There is ground that undulates a bit. But, of course, if you can't see through the forest, that high ground doesn't give you a, a great advantage. They, they pretty much bivouacked where they were. And it became very controversial because they weren't dug in. They weren't entrenched. They weren't prepared. And particularly along the Orange Plank Road, where opposite uh, Hancock's uh, Corps, and we see Hancock on the screen back there, uh, Hancock attacked in the morning a Confederate force that was ill-prepared to receive now. it. Now we're on the 6th, the morning. No, on the 6th, the next morning, yeah. The next morning, and, and really deals them a, a, a bloody nose. So it, it's going back and forth through this. Uh, well, one of the most, most dramatic parts of the battle took place on that morning of the yeah. 6th. Uh, you'll notice that we haven't mentioned James Longstreet yet. Longstreet commands the 1st Corps, but the 3rd of the Corps, and they didn't participate in the battle <clears throat> on May 5th, the first day, and because they were on their way to join the Army of Northern Virginia. Uh, Longstreet had actually fent, uh, spent the winter, his corps, um, a good, good bit south uh, of um, the area where this battle took place, on his way back from having uh, fought in uh, Georgia and Tennessee the preceding fall. 
Uh, and so uh, when Hancock attacks A.P. Hill's um, corps on the morning of May 6th, uh, Hill's people are holding on uh, by their fingernails and are about to collapse while Longstreet is moving toward uh, and arrives just in the nick of time with his uh, advanced brigades. And one of these brigades is the famous Texas Brigade. Uh, tough fighters, once commanded by John Bell Hood. Uh, and Lee is uh, somewhat untypically loses his cool uh, as the Confederates threaten to break through here uh, on the morning of May 6th. And he tries to lead a charge by the Texas Brigade uh, in this desperate situation where the Confederates seemed on the verge of collapse in that sector of the battlefield. Uh, and the, uh, a sergeant from the Texas, uh, Texas Brigade grabs hold of Traveler's harness and uh, says, General Lee, go back. General Lee, go back. And the Texas troops uh, take up the cry, General Lee to the rear, Lee to the rear. Uh, and Lee said, well, then will you drive those people back? And they said, yes, we will drive them back if you go to the rear. Uh, and uh, so they did. They, they spearheaded a counterattack that stopped uh, Hancock's advance and, and saved the Confederate uh, um, right wing, the right flank, from collapse on that sector of the battlefield. And took 70% casualties in the yeah, process. That's right, yeah. Yeah, there's a, several famous stories about this. Everybody claims to be the guy who grabbed Traveler's harness. <laughs> it, it seems that it was a sergeant. Almost everybody agrees on that, but apparently there are lots of sergeant candidates <laughs> for that honor. Um, it took place at a little, one of those clearings around a little log cabin of a house that was owned by a woman named Tap, the Widow Tap House. Uh, that became the vortex of this, of this fighting uh, for a lot of the morning. And uh, the Texas Brigade did stop that assault, but it didn't really turn it around again, and, and fighting continued back and forth some around of the, this open clearing. Some of the most vicious fighting uh, yeah. took place in that sector on the morning of May 6th. Where the, the other sector of the battlefield to the north was relatively quiet that morning. There was fighting going on, but not anywhere on the, on the same level as what was going on down here in the, the Widow Taps field. I'll tell one more quick story about that. When Longstreet's men arrive, and of course there's a bit of a rivalry between the Third Corps and the First Corps, but, but they arrive and Hill's men are, are falling back, and, and some of them made the comment, uh, having just come from the Western Theater, it says, are you sure this is Lee's army? You guys run just like Bragg soldiers. So that, was, <laughs> that, ooh, that was serious. That, that stopped them in their tracks and they turned around. You can tell this audience has been yeah, these other programs. So, I mean, there is a, a galaxy of star performer generals. Uh, I've, I've got one more to show. I like showing the guys who are follically challenged. <laughs> what did you will do that day? I mean, who were the, the others who made great successes or who suffered embarrassingly in those three days? Where is Ewell here? Well, Ewell had done a very good job on uh, the 5th, uh, uh, stopping Warren's attack uh, along the Orange Turnpike. Uh, and he continued to um, um, perform pretty well at the wilderness. Hill, I think, uh, less so. Longstreet, of course. Uh, leads uh, his, his corps arrives and leads this counterattack on the 6th. And then later that same morning, uh, 
uh, and here's where local knowledge really benefited the Confederacy. Uh, Longstreet oversees an attack where the Confederates use the um, grade of an unfinished railroad through the woods where they couldn't be seen uh, to attack the Union flank uh, and almost roll it up. But at the climax of that attack, as Longstreet was riding forward uh, to, um, to push this, this counter, this successful attack uh, uh, further along, uh, some of the Confederate soldiers emerged from the woods to his right, uh, the soldiers that had carried out this successful flank attack, uh, and mistakenly, mistaken, uh, mistake Longstreet's um, staff and uh, uh, people with him for enemy soldiers because the visibility is so limited. You, know. uh, you have not only the woods, but you've got all the smoke of the battle. Uh, and they fire into uh, the Confederates with Longstreet, and they severely wound Longstreet. Uh, and in fact, he's out of the war for the next five or six months. Uh, and that, um, that kind of brings that particular attack to a halt. But the ironic thing is that this happens almost exactly one year later and only a couple of miles from where Stonewall Jackson had been mortally wounded, well, he'd been wounded and then dies as a consequence of the pneumonia that set in at Chancellorsville. And for a time, it looked like uh, Longstreet might suffer the same fate. You and again, self-inflicted a, a friendly fire. 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 Uh, two, two of the foremost corps commanders in the Confederate Army are victims of of friendly fire in almost and, the and same place. You yeah. mentioned, uh, right, exactly. Jim mentioned last two weeks ago that how extraordinary it is that this is a very small area in, of Virginia. It's all happening in places. It, it's, it's happened before. You're, you, let me ask you both a speculative question. Part of me dislikes doing this, but you mentioned Jackson. How much does Lee miss Jackson here? How much does Grant miss having Sherman at his side here? Well, since we're speculating, I'll, I can give my opinion and, yeah, and can't be do. proved wrong. So, and, and my opinion has long been that uh, the elevation of uh, Stonewall Jackson to the pantheon of Confederate deities is part, at least, of the post-war uh, gnashing of teeth about how we could have won. If only Jackson had been here, if only Jackson had lived, we'd have won at Gettysburg, we'd have won in the wilderness, we'd, whatever. Uh, I, I suspect that, uh, I mean, Jackson had his flaws. He was a literal-minded person who, who uh, accepted no creativity on the part of his subordinates. I tell, told, I don't teach anymore, but I told my students this is not a good role model of leadership for you. And, and so I, I have always been somewhat skeptical of how important not only any individual, but Jackson, I think, in particular, might have been in subsequent campaigns, including this one. So I, I would answer your question by saying probably not a whole lot, just an opinion. On the Union side, I don't think anybody except maybe Winfield Scott Hancock performed very well. Uh, Warren did not really do very well uh, in, main, in controlling his troops on, on the 5th and even again on the 6th. Uh, John Sedgwick, commander of the Sixth Corps, allowed himself to be uh, um, a victim of a 
evening flank attack on May 6th that, that uh, rolled up his flank uh, a long direction before it was a long ways before it was stopped. Um, Burnside, uh, who was supposed to move into the gap between Hancock uh, down at the Orange Plank Road and Warren and Sedgwick to the north, uh, didn't do a very effective job. He was supposed to come in on the flank of, uh, against Longstreet and A.P. Hill. Uh, so on the Union side, uh, the subordinates did not perform very well. On the Confederate side, I think uh, both Ewell and Longstreet, until he was wounded, uh, did pretty well. So obviously the reigning, um, the reigning observations on the field, even by the press, who, from whom we've come to expect more, is confusion. I mean, they send back very confused reports. At times they go back, send back reports to Washington that there's a Union triumph, but mostly Charles Carlton Coffin says there's confusion, disorder, not, not even very vivid and, and creative reports. But there's certainly a lot of reports about gruesome details, about ceasefires to allow burial parties to and to move in or trees being set on fire and things right. that are horrifying people who read them. Are the conditions, and I know what the answer is, but I think I'll let you tell the stories. The, the, is it as, as horrific as it sounds? in the Well, it's what the reporters can see. I mean, the difficulty with the wilderness, it's amazing to me. We talk about the performance of corps commanders in the wilderness. How do they know what's going on? You have to send couriers riding off into the woods to tell this subordinate commander to one thing or another, and, and you, ha you can't see any of it. You have to kind of do it almost eyes closed in a, in a darkened room to figure out what's happening, and the reporters were exactly the same way. They could report on what they saw, but there's almost nothing to see except these graphic, horrible, vicious confrontations between small groups in a small place. And as Jim pointed out earlier, these are both commanders and armies who are determined to, to inflict as much harm as they possibly can on their opponent, and nobody calls quarter, uh, and that's what the reporters uh, submit. Is that well, one of the more horrifying parts of the Battle of the Wilderness were the fires. Yeah. Uh, the, the leaves, the dead leaves on the ground, uh, and all of the dead needles uh, from the pine trees uh, were set on fire by the exploding shells and by the wadding that uh, would be fired from the rifles. Uh, and these fires spread, and there were hundreds and hundreds of wounded men out in no man's land between the two armies, and uh, some of them were burned to death by these fires because uh, there was no way to rescue them because the enemy would fire at you if you... Uh, yeah. You could up. hear the screaming in yeah. the undergrowth, and, and if you tried to go rescue them, why, you'd get shot yourself. Right, and some of the men who were where the fire was uh, approaching them actually took their weapons and, and killed themselves. Because uh, they, Yeah, that's I have a quote here I was going to just read. One private remembers seeing a comrade, both of his legs broken, and, quote, lying on the ground with his cocked rifle by his side, eyes set on the front. I knew he meant to kill himself in case of fire. Knew it as surely as though I could read his thoughts. That wasn't even the worst of the carnage. So were there occasional ceasefires? It's a gripping scene so that people could move wounded back and forth, just little tiny ceasefires, so stretcher bearers could move in. 
Well, there were on, um, on uh, limited areas for limited times, yeah. but not very much really at the wilderness. Um, uh, at night, sometimes the stretcher bearers would try to go out and bring in men, and sometimes the enemy would, would not fire on them. There would be a kind of tacit agreement not to right. do that. Uh, but um, it, it was pretty gruesome. And we're talking about 17,000 or so casualties. Well, almost 18,000 Union casualties, and between 11, nobody knows for sure the number of Confederate right. casualties, but probably somewhere between 11 and 12,000, about the same percentage of both armies. And Grant says he's satisfied, but who, I mean, at the end of these two and a half, three days, Grant moves away. Who is the, who is the winner, the tactical winner of this? Oh. Horrific engagement. Well, one of the great moment, I mean, there are a couple, you know, the lead of the rear moment, the wounding of Longstreet moment, but uh, probably the dominant moment from a strategic point of view is at the end of, I guess it's May 7th, when, or in the middle of the night, 6-7 May, when Grant uh, decides he has lost whatever opportunity he has in this particular battlefield to inflict a decisive blow on his foe. And so he, the, the sergeants come around and kick the men awake at 1 or 2 o'clock in the morning, you know, get your kit, wrap up, we're hitting the road, and they get to the road, and they turn south. And, of course, soldiers in the Army of the Potomac in particular had seen this before, you know, from Bull Run on. You know, you fight a battle, you retreat, you go back, you retool, you get more recruits, you go, wait for another day. But this time they're not going back, they're going forward. Uh, so Grant is now trying to slip around Lee's right to get into that open field that we saw a minute ago in the Spotsylvania slide so that his numbers can matter in, in, a, in a more open space like this one. Yeah. I, I think that um, probably most historians, even northern historians, would agree that tactically this was a Confederate victory. But Grant is not thinking in terms of individual battles and whether they're a victory or defeat. And this is an important turning point, I think, in the, in the, um, in the Civil War. Uh, up until this time, the, these two armies and other armies and other theaters, too, uh, would fight a big battle, a Chancellorsville, a Gettysburg, an Antietam, whatever, Chickamauga. Uh, and one side would retreat. And uh, they'd lose con the armies would lose contact with each other. And they wouldn't uh, have another battle for a couple of months or more in some cases. That's not how Grant was going to conduct this campaign. He did not think in terms of individual battles. He saw this as the beginning of a campaign. And so his decision to move south uh, inaugurated really uh, 11 months in which these two armies were never out of contact with each other. Uh, this, this was something radically different in the Civil War. The same thing was happening in Georgia with Sherman's army, but not with the same level of casualties and not with the same level of, of uh, fighting. But this was the beginning of what turned out to be a continuous rather than a discontinuous series of, of battles uh, with, with uh, uh, constant skirmishing, constant maneuvering and movement going on between the battles in which the armies never really lost contact with each other. There was some level of fighting going on virtually every day. And, and depletion of Confederate forces and reinforcements. Yes, in the end, of course, the Confederates ran out of men. There's one great quote in Battles and Leaders of a Confederate general who's celebrating their standing up to Grant at, at uh, 
Spotsylvania is because it's no use killing these fellows because 10 more take the place of everyone, of everyone we, we kill. Craig, you've written, um, I hope you remember, in Lincoln and his admirals that Lincoln sort of thinks that um, from the fragmentary reports he's getting that uh, there is a success at hand, a big success that he can claim. And he writes, Craig writes, or he quotes Lincoln as standing up at a Marine band concert and saying, three cheers for Major General Grant and all the armies under his command. And then he goes over to the Navy Department and flops on a couch waiting for the real report. Yeah, well, some of that is bravado to a certain extent. Of course, hope springs eternal with him. Of course, it's interesting the level of his concern. He, he demoted Grant by one star with that cheer. You know, he was a lieutenant general now, not a major general. But, um, <laughs> But it is true that, that uh, as you mentioned, the reporters getting the news out, it comes in sporadically and in pieces, and there's no clear overall picture that emerges. And it's really not until the 9th, I guess, that they mm -hmm. figure out he's, he's gone south, and now the newspapers go the other way and say, it's been a miraculous victory, right. Lee is on the run, uh, the war will be over within days. And, of course, that... That's not the case either. In fact, Lee deserves a lot of credit, as excited as he seemed to be on the 5th and the 6th and trying to get his armies into battle in the wilderness. He figures out what Grant is doing before the sun comes up the next day. And he starts, I guess it's Anderson's, uh, what, division or corps? Yeah, well, Anderson, Anderson took over Longstreet's Took course. over Longstreet's, so it's uh, yeah. the 1st Corps. Starts him south. Uh, well, and, and it's almost a race now. Grant's rushing down to get to this crossroads near Spotsylvania Courthouse, uh, to seize that, that point where the roads come together, and whoever gets there first can keep the other guy on the outside, and, and Lee wins that, but it's by a matter of minutes. Minutes, yeah, yeah. Actually, it, it, Anderson uh, uh, had to cut a road through the wilderness, and he, he initially was supposed to um, camp overnight just to give his soldiers rest. Right. Uh, but it turns out that these fires made it impossible for them to find a camp. And so they just kept going overnight. And that's the reason they got there in time, uh, was the, the, the fires kept them going. And they get to this position and, and start to dig in with whatever they have. You know, they don't carry shovels in those days, but whatever they've got, bayonets, tin cans, whatever. They're, and they scrape together a little front line and the Union soldiers come out. And those lines extend and extend and extend. And over the next three weeks, pretty soon it looks like you know, Ypres or the Somme or someplace yeah. in, uh, in France in 19. Yeah, Spotsylvania looked like the Western Front. It really did. I'm going to invite those who have questions to approach the two microphones we have. I'll just, while I quote another Lincoln statement from May 9th, um, goes to the portico of the White House and sort of hedges his bets. It says, enough is known of army operations within the last five days to claim our especial gratitude to God, while what remains undone demands our most sincere prayers too, and in reliance upon him, without whom all human effort is in vain. Okay, thanks to the brave men who have been struggling with the enemy in the field, the noble commanders who have directed them. Not quite a victory claim. Uh, it's, uh, I think Lincoln is confused at this point, hopeful but confused. Well, another, there's another um, moment that carried a great deal of um, power. Grant sends a telegram back to the War Department on May 11th after the initial fighting in Spotsylvania in which he says, 
Uh, I propose to fight it out on this right. line all, if it takes all summer. This was headlines in the northern newspaper. And Lincoln likes it. And Lincoln liked it. Uh, it set off celebrations in the north. Now, finally, we've got somebody who's not going, who's to, not going to retreat, yeah. uh, who's going to keep uh, fighting like a, like a bulldog. Uh, later on, Lincoln compares Grant to a bulldog. On the 9th, the day that, that you mentioned, um, a reporter actually was with the Army and was going back and asked Grant if there was a message to carry. I've forgotten the name of the reporter. It's probably in your book. but uh, It starts with W. Yeah, but in any case, West? Uh, the line there is, you can tell the president there will be no turning back. Yeah. And right. this is when Lincoln first appreciates that he's got the bulldog. And then the public thing that gets into Stanton, I guess, released that to the press, and that makes it into all yeah. the newspapers. And, and Lincoln says, I don't know the particulars, but, and then he has this great phrase, I'm glad to know that Grant has not been jostled in his purposes. <laughs> I like that. So we have lots of people online. Let's start with this, John. We never start on this side, so let's do that. Uh, Percy Brown. Uh, this is a somewhat eccentric question, actually. Not about uh, the wilderness per se, but about Halleck. Uh, Halleck is in the background in all of these actions, I believe, thinking back to uh, Donaldson, Fort Donaldson, Henry Shiloh, and the like. I believe he was Grant's commander at that time. Yes. Uh, Gettysburg, Fredericksburg, on and on. Uh, I just like your assessment of Halleck uh, throughout this endeavor. Okay. You want to start? Or? Well, we actually had some conversation about Halleck uh, last week uh, when we were talking about Fredericksburg. Um, Halleck was a good administrator. Uh, and when he tried to do more than that, or failed to try to do what Lincoln wanted him to do, which was to make strategic decisions and give orders. Uh, he refused to do so. Uh, and Lincoln eventually became so disgusted with him, uh, he, he didn't confront Halleck himself on most of these occasions, but he did tell John Hay uh, that Halleck was little more than a first-rate clerk. And while that may not be quite fair to Halleck, I think that that... Or to John Hay, who was a first-rate clerk. Well, <laughs> that's right, he was. It's pretty insulting when you think about it. True enough, true enough. Uh, I, I, I think Halleck was a great disappointment to Lincoln. He had brought Halleck east in the summer of 1862 because he felt he needed somebody. Halleck, Halleck had presided over great success in the Western Theater that was mostly due to Grant, but Halleck had been the guy in charge. Uh, and Lincoln thought, well, okay, I'll bring him and put him in charge of all of the armies. But he never lived up to Lincoln's expectations for it. I think that's exactly right. Mm -hmm. that's, I agree. I'm Jim Pacinich, and I'm a docent here. Um, this battle, Wilderness, appears to me, and correct me if I'm wrong, two things really change here. This is the beginning of the battle of attrition between the North and South. It's also the beginning of where Grant is considered to be a bloody leader or a butcher, as Mary Todd Lincoln would begin to call him. Is, is that accurate? Um, I don't think so. I don't think there's any other way but by hard fighting that Grant can bring the war to a conclusion in the summer of 1864. And of course, he doesn't bring the war to a conclusion in the summer of 1864. But there's no way that by moving chess pieces about on a board or sleight of hand or being particularly clever 
that you're going to defeat Lee's army, one, and the Confederacy, two, uh, without hard fighting. And I think Grant is a realist and appreciates that, and so there is a very heavy cost that comes with that. The butcher term derives in part from a campaign that takes place soon afterward at Cold Harbor, in particular, where he launches this frontal assault, a second assault at, at Cold Harbor that yields in just horrific casualties in a very condensed period of time. And the photographs like this one of the casualties afterward uh, give apparent credence to this reputation as a butcher. Uh, but Grant was, was not simply a fullback who strapped on the helmet and bashed his head into the enemy wall. He, he thought about his campaigns and, and crafted them carefully, but I think hard fighting was simply unavoidable. So Jim, I'll let you take a shot at that. I agree entirely. All right, there we go. Thank you. Jim, let me add that I think that the stories about Grant's willingness to take enormous casualties in dogged pursuit of victory began at Shiloh, even, mm. and before... 1864, and was in the air. So okay. that's my view. Patrick. Oh, it's A.P. Hill himself, General A. P. By Hill the way, right there. wearing his red battle shirt today. <laughs> Tough to keep a good man down, right? <laughs> that's right. Now, I got to put you on the spot, each one of you. This coming Saturday, a group of historians are going to gather in Richmond to come up with who they decide is Person uh, of the Year for 1865. This is very painful. We'll, we'll, we'll tell you why. Well, 1861 was Abraham Lincoln. Mm -hmm. 1862 was Robert E. Lee. 1863 was U.S. Grant. 1864 was William Tecumseh Sherman. Now, who do you feel, each one of you, deserves to be known as Person of the Year for 1865? Who's going first, Harold? <laughs> I know Harold's answer. It's Abraham Lincoln, of course. No, you know, you know Time Magazine made um, Hitler Man of the Year once. That's true, he and did. if I was going to choose Man of the Year, I would say Booth. He changed American history. Ooh. Now, I lost last year, so this is an extremely painful discussion, and I believe you were a loser last year. I was a loser, too. I, yeah. I was a loser. We were all losers. I, 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 for Sherman to win. Farragut was my Ray candidate. Mayhill died before the war came to an end, so I'm a loser too, okay? I would actually do both. That would be my choice. I'd say Grant. Grant? Um, I'd have to say Grant too. Or maybe Sherman, actually. Sherman, yeah, uh, Sherman. Sherman might be. But he won last year, see, so we have to. Can't yeah. do. Well, we'll find out on Saturday. Thank we will. Thank you very much. Thanks, Pat. Who changed history the most? Booth. Well, Booth, yeah. Anyway, I'm going to stick with that. I just had the idea. We didn't rehearse this. Yes, ma'am. This is rather trivial. It's two-part. Was uh, the widow Todd at home at the time? And did her house survive? <laughs> Actually, she was at home uh, as the armies arrived in the area, and they escorted her and her, I think it was her grandchild, away as bullets were flying, the grandchild is supposed to have thought it was beginning to rain because the bullets spatting into the dirt road made these little cloud puffs that she thought was rain. So she, they got her out of the line of fire, literally in the nick of time, so you can rest easy. The, the widow tap got away. Yeah. I it's don't not know if the house survived or not. I think the house survived. The house, uh, I, the house was painted uh, in 1869, but was no longer there by 1872. So sometime in there, it uh, souvenir hunters probably I carried it away. Could be. Thank Just you. Just like they did well, the McLean house. Sure. Yeah. Yes, sir. My name is Jim Mack, and I'm a volunteer with the New York Historical Society. 
And when I read Sherman describing his march and, and, and much else that he was involved with, it gets slightly philosophical. He it seems to rise above the level of tactics and strategy. And he talks about destroying the will of the people to fight, the Confederates to fight and whatnot. Is Grant akin to that here in what you describe at the Battle of the Wilderness, where he views it as a campaign or, or as a battle as part of a larger campaign? Does he get philosophical in that sense? beyond tactics and strategy? Well, I think that uh, all of his communications and orders and what we know about he, what he did uh, indicate that he saw this as uh, part of an integrated campaign uh, to bring about the destruction of the ability of the Army of Northern Virginia to keep fighting, to carry on the war. I, I think Grant and Sherman uh, made, a, made, a uh, made a great team. Uh, Grant tells Meade in April of 1864, as we've already said, uh, that wherever Lee goes, you go there also. And, you know, try to bring him down. He gives instructions to Sherman uh, to get into the interior of Georgia, destroy their war resources, and also uh, to try to bring down Johnston's army. Sherman's strategy was to attack the uh, infrastructure that supported the war, and Grant's strategy was to attack the, uh, the enemy army that was being supported by that infrastructure. And I think this is a coordinated strategy between the two of them that eventually brought victory. And I think it was, it was conscious. It wasn't just a coincidental. Uh, this, was, uh, this was intentional. It had purpose. Uh, it, it, it had a, a coherence. Thank you. This business of Grant being a bulldog and a fierce warrior and a, or a butcher, depending on what kind of name you want to attach to him, I think overlooks the fact that he was a, a, a clear-eyed, I mean, his writing shows it, not just in the orders that he wrote, but also in his wonderful memoirs, which are very crisp and very clear and follow an orderly, you can see the working of his mind in, in what he produced. And I think he was... If not philosophical about it, he was at least clear-eyed about what was necessary and why it was necessary. And I will add one more thing about him. There's a view that, that he, he had ice water in his veins, that he was cool and calm throughout all of this. There's a great, I think it's a wad etch, uh, sketch of him sitting. This is during the Battle of the Wilderness, sitting by a tree, and he's whittling on a stick, almost as if he didn't have a care in the world. But his staff members noticed that his hands were trembling as he did it, and that whittling on the stick was necessary to keep himself from jumping up and running somewhere. And he has one moment of excitement, the same as Lee had his one moment when he tried to lead the Texas Brigade into battle along the Orange Plank Road. Grant has his moment of exciting when somebody comes in, and John B. Gordon has just turned the left flank. Longstreet turned the, the well, the, the Union right, the Confederate left. So he's been outflanked on two sides, and this courier rushes up and says, the enemy is outflanked, and so forth, and Grant jumps up from where he's been sitting. I am tired of hearing about what General Lee is going to do. You're going to about to tell me he's going to turn a double somersault and land in our rear. Stop thinking so much about what General Lee is going to do, and go back and figure out what you're going to do. And he sat back down, sort of whittling again. So, <laughs> so there is a level of excitement and concern in there, but he is clear-eyed, I think, about what he's doing. So. Let's see if we can finish our, just these three. Yes, sir. 
My name is Donald Schreiber of Union Theological Seminary. This question comes not only out of a desire to understand my Virginia ancestors and why they fought so hard in this war, but all the wars of my lifetime, which it seems to me is subject to the question of whether or not the sacrifice trap is at work in these wars. The sacrifice trap, as we learned in Vietnam, is that the more you sacrifice, the more you're willing to sacrifice. Concerning this last year of the Civil War, is it your judgment that both sides, armies and voters, were caught in that trap? I think it's, it's clear that by 1864, the soldiers, as Jim has shown in a number of his books, uh, knew and understood the broader issues that were involved in this war, even if they sometimes disagreed about what those issues were. But in addition to that, and I think personally, by 1864, even more important than that, they fought for each other by now. And in a way, all soldiers do. Uh, whatever your ideology, whatever your politics, whatever your point of view, you fight for the person next to you. And, and they had developed, uh, hard to imagine a bond stronger than one shared in life and death experiences watching your colleagues burn up while they're wounded in the wilderness. They, they, it was hard to lay down their arms, not just for the cause lost or the victory won, but because your comrades were with you. Beautifully said. Jim, do you want to anything? Well, uh, and I think the soldiers maintained a higher morale, both in the Union and the Confederate armies and then the people on the home front in 1864. Especially in the North, um, there was a, a, a growing uh, peace movement in the summer of 1864, a growing uh, 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 disillusionment with the huge sacrifice being made by their sons and fathers and brothers uh, for what appeared to be no, no success. Uh, and uh, for a time, this home front collapse or, or deterioration of morale in the North um, threatened Lincoln's reelection. And if Sherman hadn't succeeded in capturing Atlanta and Sheridan hadn't won some victories in the Shenandoah Valley in the fall of 1864, Lincoln might well have been defeated for reelection. Uh, and now it was the Confederates' turn uh, for a near collapse of home front morale at the, t at the same time that the armies uh, continued to fight as hard as they could. So I think, and that's probably uh, in part uh, for the very reason that Craig mentioned, uh, that the armies, the men in the army were fighting for each other uh, and fighting for the men that they, for the, the comrades they had lost uh, over the preceding four years now. Two more quick questions. My name is Nathan Burkhan. I'm a member of the Civil War Forum of New York. Uh, my question is, did the attrition among the officer corps of each army have play any significance? Did it slow either army down? Did it, uh, did it make any difference, for example, that A.P. Hill uh, became sick on the second or third day and could no longer uh, uh, be available as a corps commander, or that various uh, Union generals, Wadsworth uh, was killed, and I think other generals were killed. Uh, did it make any difference? Okay, attrition, good question. 
Well, I think uh, it wasn't only Hill, uh, but uh, Ewell, uh, in, in, in the months, in the weeks after the wilderness, where he performed pretty well, um, suffered what really amounted to a breakdown, I think. And he had to, he had to be replaced as a corps commander by Jubal Early. Uh, on the Union side, not only Wadsworth, but uh, Hayes was killed. Uh, Burnside, I think, is, uh, is, is in the process of deterioration in his command structure, especially after the uh, um, crater, Battle of the Crater at, uh, in, at uh, Petersburg. So clearly there's an attrition in the officer corps on both sides that does make a difference, I think. Douglas Southall Freeman uh, built his whole three-volume series on uh, Lee's lieutenants around the argument that Lee's brilliance and greatness never diminished, but that his lieutenants um, by, dropped by the wayside, beginning with Stonewall Jackson and following through to the terrible casualties of 1864, so that he had to take on more and more of the administration of the Army, the management of the Army personally, which was not his style of command. I mean, we saw already the story of him attempting to lead a brigade into battle, not the kind of thing a commanding general is supposed to be doing. So Freeman at least believed that that was a, a principal contribution to the deterioration of the efficiency of the officer corps on the, on the Confederate side. You get the final question. Thank you. My name is Norman Arnoff, and I'm an enthusiastic member of the New York Historical Society. The question that I have is, one of the figures that I'm most interested in in the Civil War is Joshua Lawrence Chamberlain, not only because of his bravery um, in the Civil War, but the impressive record um, that he demonstrated after the Civil War. Uh, do you know of any other figures in, on, that would compare to Joshua Chamberlain or, you know, what, what other interesting personalities um, would you mention in terms of heroism in the Civil War? Wow, that's a, that's a broad one. Well, just to mention one who's already been mentioned, uh, John B. Gordon on the Confederate side, uh, who starts out as a regimental commander, uh, had no previous military experience, a lawyer. Uh, and eventually works his way up to Corps Command, uh, turns out to be a, a brilliant uh, commander, and like Chamberlain, becomes politically prominent after the war, um, becomes a boss, really, of Georgia politics for decades after the war. Craig, who's your choice? Uh, Farragut, I hope. Somebody has to pick Farragut. Well, no, I, well, actually what I was going to say is the Chamberlain's example is, is proof of what I always told my students, that college professors make brilliant battlefield <laughs> Um, but I'll, I'll end with kind of a sad note, and I didn't mean to end with a sad note, but I think uh, some of the great potential leaders of the next generation, senators, governors, presidents, remained on the battlefield uh, as corpses. I think of Strong Vincent, who was Chamberlain's commander, who's the one who's, who chose the position he defended and, and gave the orders that led to the success of the 20th Maine. And one of the reasons Chamberlain became famous in the years after the war was because he lived until 1914 and gave that speech about the defense of Little Round Top at least a thousand times. Um, so that, that goes a long way to helping And by the way, died of his wounds. And died officially of his wounds yeah. in 1914, the year World War I started, of wounds received uh, during the Civil War. Um, and, and I don't mean to diminish him in any way. I'm, I'm an admirer as well, but I think there are many others who, who would have been 
memorable and great. I think Pat Clyburn, about whom I wrote, uh, could have been. I, I, Sean Vincent, I already mentioned. So we need to remember not just the ones who, were, who became great, but the ones who never had an opportunity to become great. Well, I, I'm, I apologize for one thing about this otherwise fascinating discussion, and that is we did not quite live up to the promise of going beyond where we started. This has been so engrossing, and we've covered three days plus some intriguing questions. And I, I have a quote to end with that I think represents maybe a little bit of frustration that we didn't move beyond May 7th or 9th. Noah Brooks, one of my favorite Washington correspondents of the Civil War, wrote of the, of the corpses and, and, and uh, uh, wounded being brought into Washington after the wilderness began and said, about the diminished expectation. After having cheered ourselves hoarse over the success and prospects, of, and prospects of success by Grant and the Army of the Potomac, we find ourselves pausing to take breath and discovering that our successes are more prospective than immediate. And that's what it turned out to be, and it will inspire us to have further discussions about what happens after May 7th. In the meantime, thank you all very much, and thank you.